Good morning. Your reading today is John 4, verses 1 through 30. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the fields that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and it is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Thanks, Heather. Morning, everyone. If you're just joining us or have just come in the last bit, we've been in. This is not in the middle. This is disorienting. (laughs) All right. Uh, So if you're just joining us, uh, we've been preaching through John for a while now. And you'll notice in the top right corner of the screen is the main thrust, I believe, of John's gospel, that you may believe is in Jesus and in him have 
life. If ever there was a passage in John, or if there is a passage in John's gospel that gets to the heart of that, it's this. Uh, I didn't mean it to be this way, but I think like the last four or five sermons, I've begun by asking you uh, a couple of questions. And here we are again. I got a couple of questions for you. Who is the most broken, unworthy feeling? Meaning they, they feel broken and they feel unworthy. Who is the most broken, unworthy feeling person that you've ever met or that you know? It's you for some of you. Whoever comes to mind, I want to ask you a couple more questions. What forms did that sense of unbrokenness or unworthiness take? How, how did it show up in them? What did it look like? What, and then what was the source of that? Why did they feel that? So what did it look like on the outside? But what, where, in their minds at least, did that feeling come from? I've met people who felt that way because of things that they had done. I've met people who felt that way because of things that had been done to them. And I've met people who felt that way for reasons they couldn't even articulate. They they didn't know why they felt like they felt. There's one guy in particular that stands out. He had a rough upbringing and made some terrible choices and had some bad consequences that went with those choices. All of that sort of led him into a destructive cycle that produced a constant sense of torment. It seemed that to him that nothing he could do could overcome these feelings of brokenness and unworthiness and brokenness in the sense that he never felt whole or complete. He always felt torn apart and and unworthiness in the sense that he never felt worthy of being loved or forgiven or of belonging anywhere. These feelings were both horizontal this friend of mine, in the sense that he felt them among people, but also vertical and most tragic between himself and God. I remember him describing the regular feeling of walls closing in on him. Uh, It always felt to him like if he didn't do something, he was going to be crushed. And so often he would take whatever door presented itself first, whatever that door was. Generally speaking, people like that for them. The problem is not convincing them of the need for salvation. If you know someone like this, or if you are someone like this, you already know where I'm going. It's convincing them that they can be saved. It's not that they need to. They know that. It's the sense that could they be saved? They they couldn't possibly, right? God couldn't possibly forgive them for all of the evils that they had engaged in or experienced or encountered or been subjected to. They can't possibly believe that God would truly forgive them, much less love them, much less welcome them into his presence. Of course, there are people on the other end of the spectrum as well, people filled with a sense of accomplishment or worthiness, such that they can't imagine that they have anything to be saved from. And of course, there's people everywhere in between also, people who don't think much about that, about being worthy or unworthy, broken or whole, salvation or condemnation. Well, Grace, this is a passage about salvation for the whole spectrum, but especially for those who feel broken and unworthy. It certainly has implications for all of us, for everyone you've ever met, for everyone you ever will meet, for everyone that's ever lived. 
since Adam. It certainly has implications for everyone, but especially for those who have a hard time lifting their heads up, whose natural disposition is head down. This is a passage about salvation, but especially for those who know they need it, but don't feel worthy of it. The main points of the sermon, four of them, if you have a sermon outline, you can see them plainly. Everyone needs saving. Number one, everyone needs saving. Number two, salvation is in Jesus alone. Number three, salvation is for all, everyone who will receive it in faith. And four, salvation is more than mere forgiveness of sins. I love that one. Let's pray that God would help us to see each of these things and live in light of them. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that apart from it, we could know certain things about you without even knowing for sure that we knew them. Creation certainly reveals certain aspects of who you are, Paul tells us in Romans. But certainty about what we're seeing or our interpretation of those things is about your nature comes from your word alone. So thank you for giving that to us. Thank you for opening that up to us by your spirit and your people. Thank you for this passage, this passage of salvation, this passage that in some ways is less clear than Paul's description of it throughout Romans. And in some ways it's more clear because it gets deep into our heart. It it helps us to see it in a real person, in a real situation, in a way that in, in some ways, again, opens us up to us even more than Paul can. So help us to get that. Help us to get that you purposefully reveal truth to us in different ways and different types of writing and in order to give us the fullest possible picture of your love for us that caused you, we saw, to send your son Jesus to die for us, that whoever would believe in his name, whoever would receive him, might not know condemnation, might not know death, but everlasting life. Thank you that what that what we read there in John 3.16, we see in real life in this passage of the woman at the well. Give us eyes to see, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I've got to go back just a little bit. If you weren't here last week, I went, I went through this passage already and talked about some of the cultural gaps, things that just by reading it through our lens today, through 21st century American eyes, we would miss. If you didn't, if you weren't here for that or didn't read it, I'd encourage you to go back. But I got to go back just a little bit and give you a profile of this woman to make full sense of the salvation offered to us in Jesus through this. We got to we got to go back just a little bit. So profile three aspects. She was a she. Today that sounds different than it would have in the past. I don't mean what it maybe sounds like I mean, but she was a she, she was a Samaritan, and she was a Samaritan outcast. Let me tell you why each of those matter. Culturally, it's important that this is the story of the woman at the well and not the man at the well. It's important because culturally Jesus shouldn't have been talking to her at all. And in particular... Or, or men didn't talk to women like this in public. And in particular, rabbis like Jesus didn't talk to adulterous, sinful, unrighteous women like this one. But it's important mainly because if you wanted to tell, this is key, if you wanted to tell a first century Jew a story of the lowest of the low, as was the case, 
for John and his gospel here. That's what he wanted to do. If that's what you wanted to do, it would most, most certainly start like this. Second, she was a Samaritan. Lower still in the eyes of John's readers, first century Jews, was the fact that she was a Samaritan woman. You may remember from last week or from your own study of this passage that Samaritans were a group of Jews who had intermarried centuries earlier with conquering Assyrians, Babylonians, and Medians, pagan nations that surrounded Israel. They'd intermarried with them. Worse still, they were a group of people who had intermarried with the gods of those nations. They were idolaters. They had forsaken Yahweh as the one true God. On top of all of that, and largely as a result of all of that, there had been years and years and years and years and years of wars and atrocities committed between Jews and Samaritans, such that there was genuine hatred between them. This is why the woman was shocked that Jesus would talk to her at all, and why John added, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This woman was a part of a people who had formed a cult and who were despised by the people to whom Jesus belonged. For all these reasons, he shouldn't have been talking to her. That's really important. And lastly, lowest of all, she was not only a woman and a Samaritan woman, but she was a Samaritan woman outcast. She was an outcast because she was uneducated and poor, but mostly she was an outcast because her of her immoral and promiscuous behavior, her adulterous behavior. The text explicitly tells us that she had had five husbands and was now living with a man she was not married to. Implied, however, was that she was not a five-time widow, but a five-time divorcee for sinful reasons. She was gather she was gathering water because, like she was there at the well, she was gathering water because she was uneducated and poor. She was gathering water alone in the heat of the day because she was despised even among the despised. So again, the main reason we need to be clear on this profile is that it is that of a woman who is about as far from righteous as it gets in the eyes of John's readers. If there was anyone who needed to be saved, but in their eyes likely was beyond the reach of the grace and mercy of God, it was this woman. And that leads to the first main point. One danger in interpreting this passage then, in light of all that, we need all of that, that's an important part of it, is that it might lead some to mistakenly believe that salvation is only necessary then for those who are really bad, for people like this particular woman at at the well. That's certainly what I believed growing up, sort of. If you would have asked me for most of the beginning of my life, if I thought I'd go to heaven when I died, I would have said yes. And if you were to ask me why I thought that, my answer would be because I'm not as bad as the bad people who won't go to heaven when they die. And I had to think about this a decent amount this week. What what was going on there? And I, I think this is it. I don't think growing up I ever really thought in terms of salvation. I think the long and the short of my made-up Dave theology was that there were basically good people who were just right with God by nature of being basically good, and there were really bad people, and I was one of the good ones, and Hitler was one of the bad ones, who, who couldn't get right with God. And I didn't have much more 
beyond that. And I thought about this too. What camp with my busted theology would I have put this woman in? And I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But I am sure that the readers of John's gospel would have put her in the second camp. They would have understood her to be a terrible sinner, probably outside of the reach of the mercy of God. Two of the biggest theological tragedies of Jesus' day, which we encounter here among the Israelites, were the mistaken view that other people were sinners. They were sinners. And that salvation was primarily, that the salvation offered by the Messiah, the Christ, was primarily about military liberation. So Jesus addressed both of these. In Luke 18, he addressed the first. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, which is the highest in their eyes of the Jews, and the other a tax collector, which in their minds was the lowest. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, or like the woman at the well, he would have prayed. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, like the woman at the well. Or even like a tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the the tax collector who beat his breast, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus overcoming the first theological tragedy of his day. Everyone is a sinner, and therefore everyone needs to be saved, Jesus says. And the second Jesus addressed at the beginning of Acts, he'd already suffered and died and rose from the dead. And before he ascended back up into heaven, gathered the disciples together, Peter asked him a question. So when Jesus' followers had come together, they, and in particular Peter, asked him, Lord, is it now that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Or will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Implied in this question, even now, the Holy Spirit hadn't come upon them yet. Implied in this question, even now, was a mistaken belief that restoring the kingdom of Israel meant conquering the Romans. Is now the time? Jesus corrected them by telling them, you're going to get power probably thinking, sweet, okay, we'll be a part of this too. We get to conquer them as well, but not for that. That's not what your power is going to be for, but to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, to proclaim good news to captives. They would receive power for the purpose of spreading good news, not military victory. The keys for us to see in this passage, grace, and in the teaching of Jesus are that no matter our level of earthly oppression, No matter how broken you feel, no matter how much others are holding you down or pressing you down, our greatest need, all of us, is always spiritual, not physical salvation. And secondly, all of us need to be saved. It is clear from this passage that the woman at the well needed to be rescued from her unrighteousness. But listen to me, Grace, she is us. If you're reading this passage primarily through the lens of you being Jesus, offering salvation to sinners, you're not reading this rightly. She is all of us. In this story, we are not righteous Jesus offering salvation to the world. We are the woman at the well needing Jesus to rescue us from our own sin and rebellion. If you don't come through that gate, you cannot be saved. and We all need to be saved. Now, this is, this is a part of the way we preach 
at grace makes something like this a little harder to see. So I want to say this plainly. If you're not yet convinced, I hope you are, but if you're not yet convinced that what I'm saying is true, all of this is made even more clear, particularly clear, when we remember that this passage is on the heels of Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? He was everything this woman wasn't. She was poor and he was rich. She was weak and he was strong. She was uneducated and he was as learned as it got. She was unrighteous. He was righteous. She was a, she, she was a social and religious outcast. He was an insider. But John told both stories and he told them together to highlight that both needed to be saved. And if these two people who are at the ends of the spectrum, one who had it all in the way of righteousness in the eyes of the world, and one who had none of it in the way of righteousness in the eyes of the world, and if both of these need to be saved, which was John's clear point of emphasis and Jesus' clear point of emphasis, then everyone in between, which is everyone else, needs to be saved. That's us. You with me, Grace? Yes. The second main point of this text Concern, uh, concerning salvation is that salvation is found in Jesus alone. We all need to be saved, and there's one place in which that is found. Let that, let that, that's the heart of verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. This idea isn't something Jesus came up with on the spot. He was claiming a number of Old Testament prophecies for himself in that moment. Like Jeremiah 2.13, my people, Lord God says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. This is what Jesus is claiming for himself right now. I am that. And hewn cisterns out for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I'm going to come back to the second part of that later. Jesus is the fountain of living waters. He is the only fountain of living waters. The water that I will give will become in you and all who drink of it a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is salvation, and there is salvation in no other. We find this Truth, and you got to get this. There's two other places in this passage as well that salvation in Christ alone is found, but it's embedded a little deeper. So let me explain what I mean. First, the basic understanding among the Jews was that handling something unclean, anything unclean, would make a person unclean. And in God's law, there's a sense in which that's true. If you're ceremonially clean and you touch something that's ceremonially unclean, that thing makes you, makes you unclean. Ordinary Jews, for that reason, would have feared and avoided eating and drinking with this woman because they believed she would have made them unclean. And, and again, in a sense, she would have. But the key here is Jesus is entirely different. Instead of being made unclean, he asked her for a a drink of water, and for her to use her vessel and give this to him. The eyes of John's readers would have been a tragedy. It would have made him unclean. But Jesus is different. The unclean things he touches become clean. Rather than them making him unclean, he makes them clean. And agreeing to accept water from this woman, he was offering to make her clean. He alone can do that. The second, more embedded way that we see that salvation is found in Jesus alone is in the woman's twin claims. 
This is a whole sermon, and maybe one of the other elders will preach this soon. Here's the sermon, but I'm only going to give you about 30 words. Consider the woman's claims. You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Physically, she's right. Jesus didn't have a vessel with him, and this was probably about a 100-foot deep well. Couldn't just reach down or, hey, grab my ankles then and just lower me out. Didn't work like that. This is a subtle, embedded reminder, Grace, of something absolutely profound. That since mankind, all have fallen into sin and death and need to be reconciled to God. But here's the key. We have no way of doing so on our own. We have no way of drawing the living water that we need. Our sin has caused us to need living water, but we have no way to draw it on our own. We have nothing to draw it with because the well of our sins runs too deep. She was so much more right than she understood and so much more wrong than she understood. From her perspective, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is too deep. We've tried to get right with God, but we can't do it on our own. The sin runs too deep. Grace, hear this. See this in the text. The reason Jesus came to the woman and to you and I was to do that for all who would receive him, to go deep enough to take on the entire wrath of God to get to the bottom of our sin and bring up from below it living waters of eternal life. That's what's going on here. Jesus alone goes deep enough. It's hard to overstate the amazing grace of this. Salvation is found in Jesus alone, since he alone is the fountain of living water, that which makes unclean things clean. And since he alone is able to go sufficiently deep, we're going to sing this in a minute. Sin, is mercy is more, right? <laughs> It'll sound better than that. But you know what I'm saying. It's not in the manuscript. We're going to sing this. And I hope by staring at this in this text, you can sing it in a way you couldn't sing it before. That's what preaching is for. That's why we give you the word of God so that you can sing this with more joy, more gladness at the amazing grace that it is. All right, here's number three. Last two are shorter. Third main point is that salvation in Jesus is for all, all, all who will receive him. The profile at the beginning of the sermon was meant to help help establish this point clearly. If Jesus would offer himself to this woman, again, remember, we're looking through the lens of John's first readers, and in their minds, if salvation was available to someone like her, it must be available to anyone and everyone. If it was available to what would have been considered the lowest of low, then it truly is there for all who would receive Jesus. No one grace is beyond the reach of Jesus saving grace. No one's sin goes so deep that Jesus can't get deeper still. This woman was of the wrong race. She was of the wrong gender. She was of the wrong education. She was of the wrong lifestyle. She was of the wrong religion, according to the prevailing customs and understandings of Jesus' day. And yet Jesus offered himself to her without hesitation. In fact, as we saw, it was more than that. He didn't just happen by this well and happen to offer himself to her because on his way to do what he really came to do, he he was willing to be inconvenienced. We saw last week that Jesus specifically went to this woman 
to offer salvation to her, in large measure to teach you today this lesson, that salvation in Jesus is for all who will receive him in faith. Grace, I mentioned at the beginning of this message that it is a message for all of us, but especially for the broken and unworthy. And it is, if you're hurting and lonely, if you're caught in sin, and I know some of you are, if you're overwhelmed by a sense of guilt and shame, if it's hard for you to lift your head up, let alone imagine God's love being offered to you, then hear the good news that Jesus will receive you right now precisely because of those things, because you see those things, because you recognize those things. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, our Lord said, but the sick. You do not need to clean yourself up first. Jesus will help with that. You do not need to work harder. Jesus will help with that. You do not need to learn everything that Jesus has ever said. Jesus will help you with that, and so will we. You need only to admit your need for a Savior and come to Jesus. He will receive you. He will forgive you. He will wash you clean. He will restore what sin has broken. He will enable you to turn from your sins. This is the very, heart, the very heartbeat of the story is that salvation in Jesus is available to all who will receive it. If it teaches us anything, it teaches us that. Finally, lastly, the salvation that Jesus offers all who will receive him is more than a mere cleansing of sins. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. Beyond simply being a well of the patriarch Jacob, the well that brought Jesus and that Samaritan woman together was fairly special. So she thought it was special largely because it came from Jacob, and it was in a sense. But it was more special still. Most wells simply hold water at that time. They dig deep enough that they got below the water table, and it would function more like a cistern. It would just hold the water that was there. But this well was different. It was fed by a spring, an active spring, and and I read this this week, it actually still is. You can actually go here now, and it's still fed by this same spring. It was, in a physical sense, a well of living water. But Grace, the point of this is that in a similar way, salvation in Jesus is unique. It is about deliverance from enemies. They weren't totally wrong in thinking that. It was about deliverance. One day there will be no enemies of the people of God. But it was more than they understood than simply getting a repressive regime off of their back. It is about forgiveness of sins, and that's great news. But it is also more than simply about, than, uh, it is about more than simply canceling our debt, giving us a zero balance. It is a living salvation, Grace. It is a living salvation. We have been saved if our hope is in Jesus, and we are being saved if our hope is in Jesus. It brings with it adoption into the family of God, God's unwavering, sustaining grace, complete restoration and complete sanctification, and most of all, everlasting fellowship and complete satisfaction in God. Jesus does not merely clean us up, pat us on the back, and send us on our way. His salvation is much more than that. The salvation that Jesus brings truly is living water, living salvation. 
It is a relationship with a God who is alive and with us and in us. It is a spiritual water that once drunk will quench your thirst forever. When you receive it, when you take and drink, you will never want again. Everyone who drinks of this water of the well, the physical water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, whoever tastes my salvation, will never be thirsty again. This is why the woman's questioning was so importantly misguided. Listen to this. I'm almost done. Dial in here. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Great question. Jacob was the Michael Jordan of the day. Jesus' answer, yeah. Are you greater than our father Isaac, his father? Yeah, I am. How about Abraham? Yep. Moses? Yep. The prophets? Isaiah? Elijah? Elisha? Jeremiah? Daniel? Yes, 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 and yes. Are you greater than all of them combined? Yep. Are you greater than all of them combined and multiplied by a billion? A billion times, yes. In other words, we are not saved to get everything we ever wanted on earth in heaven. We are saved by Jesus in order to be freed to worship Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever. That is the salvation of Jesus, found only in Jesus, that is available to all who will trust in Jesus. It is salvation from sin to complete, total, perfect, and eternal joy in the presence and fellowship of God. That realization sets us up well for next week, which is what this passage teaches us about worship. But in verse 10, Jesus exclaimed, if you knew the gift of God. I'm not much of an exclaimer, but if I were, I would exclaim this now. If you knew, Grace Church, the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God. You think you do, and you do sort of. But if you knew the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God. If you only knew what God offers you in me, Jesus says, it's so much greater than anything and everything you've ever imagined. Come to me, trust in me, receive my living, cleansing, restoring, satisfying waters. That's the heart of this. That's the heart of salvation. So what should our response be to all of this in conclusion? Two things. First, we should echo the Samaritan woman's words. And second, we should follow her actions. What do I mean? First, we should echo her words at the well. We should cry out to Jesus, give me this water so that I may never thirst again. Do that now. If you've never trusted in Jesus, receive the living waters that he offers you in faith right now. This is the means by which God has appointed us to be saved. Turn to him for salvation today, right now. He will give you living water if you will Ask him in faith, especially if you don't feel like you deserve it. Because you don't. And neither do I. But he offers it freely in love anyway. Second, we should respond by echoing the actions of the woman as well. Two things. First, leave behind your water jar. Look at verse 28. Leave it behind. Set it down. The thing that you used to think would satisfy you, put it away. Just leave it. Go on from it. It won't. You think it will, but it won't. Jesus alone satisfies. Do what she did. Leave behind your water jar. Leave behind your old ways of seeking satisfaction. Turn entirely to Jesus. And second, go and tell everyone you meet. Say to them, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. When you've tasted this living water, 
You cannot continue to seek the old putrid water that cannot be contained. It's broken vessels and bad cisterns. And you cannot keep it to yourself. We must share it with others. We can't not. It is the greatest news and the sweetest gift. It is the purest act of love and the most natural response to receiving the living waters of Jesus. Call out to Jesus today and be saved. In your salvation, turn from your old water and tell everyone of the living waters that they too might drink and be satisfied.